This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week's episode focuses on uh, one of the most discussed topics in politics today, but also one that's uh, often misunderstood. Uh, campaign finance and the role of money in American politics in general and in particular in political campaigns. And we have with us uh, probably the person who's thought about these issues most deeply that I know, uh, Brian Roberts. He's a professor here at the University of Texas in Austin, a friend and colleague in the Department of Government. Uh, Brian studies uh, American political institutions, interest groups, and positive political economy, which basically means that being an expert on political science was not enough for him. He also wanted to be an expert on economics. And so he studies the intersection between economics and politics, which is what allows him to have unique understanding of the role of money in politics, uh, really getting into the economic elements of it in a way that most of us who are not trained in that field can't. Uh, He writes on a wide variety of fields. I recommend his articles on politics and financial markets, corporate political participation, and distributive uh, politics. Brian, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Before we turn to our discussion uh, with Brian, we have, of course, Zachary's uh, scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem today? Money Have Mercy. Money Have Mercy. Let's hear it. Money How naive you were when you were little bits of gold that changed hands in Egypt millennia ago. How innocent when we used to preserve you in our ceramic pink pigs to buy balloons and bazooka bubblegum. And the way I used to collect state quarters like they weren't just the zinc leftovers of cash thrown at endless politicians and improbable gerrymandered districts. The way Asheville, North Carolina has no Democratic representatives. And it's easy to become despondent thinking of you, of the streets paved with gold that my great-grandparents never truly found. The way it all seems so useless, idly thumbing the softened sheets of green paper in my old wallet, the way the coins just pile up on the counter. But I have always lived in state capitals defined by state capital, freedom havens defined by free markets. And money, you have made America somewhat of a contradiction, the ultimate mixed economy, diverse society that still clings to the extremes like a clothesline, the way hundreds of thousands of dollars are needed just to have a say in this city. The way that there are whole logistical organizations hell-bent on buying democracy, still proselytizing religion as they sell despondency. Money, green-backed buyer of all things, where were you yesterday for the homeless man under the 183 overpass, and what will you do to our country, still 350 days before the election? Whatever it is, have mercy on our pocketbooks. That's wonderful, Zachary. I love the playfulness of that, and I I love the contradictions that you capture. What is your poem really about? Uh, my poem was really about uh, how much money defines our society in both good and bad and how much of a role it has in our politics today. Mm. A big role, you see. Yeah, a very big role. Well, that, that's, I think, the perfect place to turn to, to Brian. You've thought about this so much, Brian. Uh, h- how do we understand uh, the role of money in politics? Where does it come from in our society? Well, I mean, money's been part of American politics from the very beginning, Um, Early on, it was very much sort of inside politics money. The candidates themselves would fund their campaigns. And then, you know, you get the Jacksonian uh, democratization, if you will. And and that changed things a little bit. I think, you know, one of the interesting historical turning points, um, ironically, was was the Pendleton Act in 1883 when when, um, 
it kind of overthrew the way that money had been raised, which was through the party system. Right, right. And suddenly that was done away with the, the spoil system was effectively done away right. with. Right, this creates a modern civil service system. Right. right, And but that was the way parties funded politics back then. And, and You then, paid to have a position in government. Right? And then, uh, well, you know, we still need money to fund some of these things. And, and that's where people like Mark Hanna got creative. Yes. And, and like any good bank robber, asked the question, where's, the, you know, <laughs> why did you rob the banks? <laughs> that's where the money is, right? And so where did Mark Hanna go? He went to the corporations. So Mark Hanna and, it was the fundraiser and political organizer for President William McKinley. Exactly. And, and, um, and it was, this coincides, of course, with, with industrialization in this country yes. and, and the rise of these large corporate entities that, for which there was no precedent. And, and there was also sort of no precedent for the amount of money that they potentially had. And so that kind of got a lot of the stuff kicked off and, and ultimately led to a lot of the progressive era reforms with, with the um, uh, passage of the first federal campaign finance mm-hmm. act in, in, in 1907 with the Tillman Act, which clamped down on corporate contributions. Right. And off we went from right. there. Right. Um, but it was still possible at that time for wealthy individuals like uh, John D. Rockefeller to make huge contributions. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that was where both parties actually were going early on. Um, you know, one of the ironies of history there was, uh, you know, there was a lot of the two early things that people talked about in terms of regulating money. One was corporate contributions and the other was disclosure. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and the disclosure turned out to be a more of a challenge for the political class than the corporate contribution ban, because like you suggested, there were other means by which you could tap into some large amounts of right. money. Right, right. But, um, but one of the ways that disclosure got going was uh, in the 1908 election when, hmm. when Taft, against Brian, William Jennings Browning, Bryan, um, announced that he was unilaterally going to disclose all his contributions. And, um, and then Brian went along with that as well. And this was before any law had passed. Wow. And it turned out to be this uh, political uh, coup because he, it turned out that, that the large individual donors uh, backed way off. And so when he, in fact, did disclose all this, inf- this money, that uh, it was nowhere near where people thought it would be. And this was considered a, a big plus for Taft, and he ends up winning the election. Right. So and it, then, people, he didn't have as much money from rich people as people thought right, he did. And he, as a consequence, he had to begin thinking about small donors in ways that had never been thought before. And, and then two years later, Congress gets on board and starts passing the first disclosure law. And, and we're off and running. I see. And did that empower the parties at that point? or Well, the, the parties were struggling because uh, they were still trying to settle on a new funding model, right? And so there was still a lot of reliance on East Coast money. Um, you know, th- this was another thing that we began to see the first uh, efforts to broaden the donor base. And uh, the Republicans under George Perkins put out um, the first sort of direct mail hmm. and reached out across the country to small business owners and asked them for $50 a piece and, uh, and got 50% response rate, which was pretty wow. extraordinary. Wow. And uh, Democrats were largely relying on, on uh, party newspapers and then soliciting through them Interesting. And, and weren't doing quite as well. Interesting. But, uh, and when we think about uh, the Great Depression and World War II, did, did this kind of fundraising stop in that period or what happened then? No, I, I think, well, obviously that period saw the rise of organized labor, which became right. a political force and ultimately led Congress to clamp down on them under a lot of the World War II legislation 
and part of that clamping down had to do with uh, money and politics. Right. And uh, one of the interesting historical facts there is in response to uh, several pieces of legislation there, most notably Smith-Conley Act, um, Organized Labor created the first political action committee. Interesting. Called the Political Action, action committee. committee. Right. And, and again, we're off and running. So they invent this. The they invented it invent as a way of, of dealing with some of the restrictions that Congress was putting on them. So it, it was to raise money separately, not use mo- union funds directly to to uh, to make independent expenditures right. and, 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 the, and the like. Because the concern was that labor unions owned certain candidates. So this was a way of yes. trying to at least create some distance between the AFL-CIO right. and right. a particular candidate right. um, at the time. Is, is it fair to say that this system, though, uh, as it came into existence, was part of the story of Franklin Roosevelt's revolution? Was he was he one of the chief beneficiaries uh, of well, this? Well, certainly of, of the rise of organized labor, right? And that's, you know, so some of the Things that happened during World War II that didn't sit well with Congress um, was tied to organized labor, but it was also so. But they carried it over to all sorts of other things, such okay. as campaign finance. Okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean that was that was an interesting era. But you know, in terms of the underlying regulations, there was a Federal Corrupt Practices Act of 1925 that was sort of the last major campaign finance law until the 70s. And, you know, it, it's kind of a well-known, well-trod story that um, no one ever, really ever got hurt by the Federal Corrupt Practices right, Act. Right, right. So. One of the things you and I have talked about is how hard it is to enforce even the limited restrictions right. that exist. And at that right. time, there, were, there was no um, independent enforcement agency, no Federal Election Commission. Uh, there, the disclosure was turned over to the House and the Senate and was on paper and ended up in some dark closet, and, <laughs> um, and, and which is – yeah, you know, there were some intrepid political scientists that dug into that, but, right? But the whole, not a whole lot of work was right, done with that, right? And and is is the period after World War II the beginning of 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 what we see today? Would you would you link that to today or? Um, yeah, I mean, what, what's interesting about campaign finance regulation is all the ideas were talked about early on in the 20th century, the limits on contributions, expenditures, disclosure, even public funding was mentioned pretty early on. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, one of the interesting history lessons here is the sort of the absence of new ideas or sort of the same, the contours of campaign finance regulation have, have largely remained the same, just sort of variations on, on mm. some very old themes. Mm. Mm. Um, how, how have we really uh, seen, like how has money played uh, differently in a politics that is increasingly defined by the media and uh, by technology? Um, well, so, First thing about money in politics yeah. is by far and away most of the money raised, most of the money spent, yeah, goes through the media. It's it's for it's for political advertising of one form or another. So there's a direct connection between media and money there, right? That's yeah. always been there in terms of how the money is used. You know, it's it's gotten more interesting now with social media and and you know, now the some of the, some of the First Amendment discussions are bleeding over to the private sector and sort of the, all the discussions with Facebook and Google and Twitter and, and, right. and right. Um, which is largely outside the reach of the First Amendment in terms of campaign finance sure. regulation. Sure. Sure. But um, but debating about who can speak, how much, right. about what, right. and who regulates that, right? right. And, and it's largely something that's been untouched at least 
in some sense by the, by federal law, but it's something now being debated within private actors, right. which is a very interesting new wrinkle to all that right. entire debate. And, and it's a controversy, of course, that goes back to radio and television, which I think where Zachary's question was yeah, also. Well, so, right? so certainly the rise of radio, in particular television in the 60s, um, significantly raised the cost of campaigning. Right. And that's really what led to the first new campaign finance laws, early 1970s, 1971, which, which replaced the 1925 law. But it was designed primarily um, to deal with rising campaign costs and the fact that the Democratic Party was um, emerging from the 60s in pretty significant deficit and right. trying to figure out some way to control things, right. control costs. And, and is that also the moment that we should start talking about at least the perception that corporations are more significant? I mean, Lyndon Johnson, of course, you know, mobilizes yeah, Brown it, and Root and yeah, other, yeah. other oil I mean, money the, in you, Texas. You get these isolated stories. I mean, clearly the... Um, you know, one of the things that's sometimes lost on history is how much the Watergate scandal was a campaign finance scandal. Right? Yes, absolutely. And, and that included some very large individual donations, but also some corporate contributions right. that came to light and, and uh, which were illegal. Right. Right. But because those contributions have been outlawed since 1907. But nonetheless, it, it reemerges on the front pages as as an issue again. Sure. Right. Sure. And and it was really Watergate and the the nineteen seventy four amendments to that nineteen seventy one bill, which was in the large course of history pretty innocuous. It was, you know, trying to control campaign costs. The seventy four amendments in the wake of Watergate were really set the the framework for modern campaign finance. Um, and, and so then how should we think about today? That that history is super, I think, important in understanding where we are today, right? How would you define or describe the landscape for people? Well, the landscape, think? again, gets defined by Watergate and, and the 74 amendments and then the subsequent court challenge, which ended up in a very, very significant court case, Buckley versus Vallejo. Right. We should talk about that for yeah, a so couple minutes. The, and, you know, the... the Biggest thing about Buckley is it created explicitly uh, the one of the frameworks created there was that any debate about money in politics was about the First Amendment. Right, this is a 1976 Supreme Court case. Exactly, and and so uh, so the court starts its its per curiam unsigned decision, um, noting that and and this is something of a misnomer, the notion that they said money equals speech. They basically made a very pragmatic observation. In today's day and age, mid-70s, uh, it costs a lot of money to, to engage in mass communicate, political right. communication. Right. And, and so if you limit money in politics, you are effectively limiting speech, political speech in a democracy. And they went to great pains to say, you know, this isn't any, any kind of speech. This is really important stuff. And, uh, and so that, that has been the, the foundation for all discussions ever since. It, it revolves around this First Amendment question. And then it's debates about to what extent one can limit what would otherwise be an infringement on the First Amendment, and that those debates have been raging ever since. And, and Buckley was was instrumental. Um, nobody likes the Buckley decision, right? Um, right. One of the things it did that is most controversial. I mean, I think the casting it in terms of the First Amendment set some people off, but but the the big compromise, the big political compromise in Buckley was using that framework, the First Amendment framework, and what criteria or, as it turns out, criterion 
would be uh, needed to be met in order to uh, infringe on the First Amendment, gotcha. if you will. And, and that turned out to be corruption or the perception of corruption. Now, there were some other ideas advanced, uh, including one of equalization, which uh, resonates with a lot of people, but the court emphatically says, we're not going there. Right. We, uh, it, it, it's uh, not something we, we really want to entertain at all. And so we're, we're left with a framework that says, uh, if you limit money in politics, you are infringing on the First Amendment. However, much like you can't you, you can pass laws that say you can't scream fire in, a, in right. a movie theater unless, in fact, there is a fire. So the compelling interest that the court came up with was corruption or the appearance of corruption. And, and that, uh, has, that led to the next really controversial part of the decision, which is using that framework, um, the court decides that contribution limits – are constitutional. They're, they, are, they are okay. They used a lower level of scrutiny uh, in evaluating contribution limits. These are contributions to candidates. To candidates, to political action, well, to parties. There, there right. were several right. provisions in there, but principally the, the Buckley case was about individual contributions. Um, and uh, so limits on contributions were okay, but limits on expenditures were not okay. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of splitting the baby in ways that satisfied nobody. So either those that wanted more wholesale limits on money in politics or those that wanted to abandon that enterprise altogether. And and so, but this compromise, this uh, political truce in some sense has endured, right? We, we have kept to that uh, very fine line created in Buckley uh, to this day, right. and, and everyone operates both with this notion that contribution limits are okay. There's some, there's lots of court battles over what those boundaries right. are, but right. the principle is, is remained. Um, but that expenditure limits not okay. Now Buckley talked about expenditure limits in the context of individuals and didn't entertain discussion of expenditures by others in, right. in particular corporations or unions. And that that's what subsequently comes up in Citizens United, you know, in 2010. Um, but, you know, the one thing about Citizens United is, is it, it really offers no new language other than that was found in Buckley in 1976. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a court case in 1990 that, that actually upheld laws that banned corporate independent expenditures, a uh, case out of Michigan, Austin versus Michigan Chamber, that that um, stayed within the Buckley framework and found, even though Buckley had said no limits on expenditures, found a, a way to get to uphold a law limiting or prohibiting corporate independent expenditures. Gotcha. But we won't go into the details of that, but Citizens United basically restores the argument, the principles established in the definitions established back in, in Buckley. Right. And, and so Citizens United didn't break a whole lot of new ground in that sense. Right. right? So, so the playing field really from 76 is that uh, there are limits on what any of us can give to a particular federal candidate if there's a federal statute passed, and of course there is. And that can also apply in other other domains as well, such as Austin race, races in Austin have limits on them as well. But there cannot be any limit on how much a candidate can spend. A candidate so, can spend or a third party. Or a third party, which right. is where we get into political action committees and other, other groups. And in particular, um, what we call super PACs, which... Right. which 
are uh, limited to making what are called independent expenditures, right? So these are political ads that expressly advocate uh, for or against a a named candidate and um, but lack any coordination or communication with a party or a candidate. Right. Right. And and that's the world we live in in many ways right now. Great. And this is so helpful in then answering this this question, which I think is really our money question, which is, what's the real problem then today? What Why is it that it appears uh, that money, in particular in the last 20 to 30 years, has skewed our elections? And of course, as you've pointed out, it's always been a part of our yeah, elections. Yeah, you know, and, and that, that's a really interesting question. I actually have my, my undergraduates do a research project every year addressing the question of whether uh, money buys election yeah. outcomes. Yeah. and. You know, you you can ask Hillary Clinton whether that matters. You can ask Beto O'Rourke whether mm-hmm. money buys elections. It's right. it's it's not uniformly the case. And in fact, some of the very early research using data that was first released in the in the mid seventies, late seventies by the Federal Election Commission, you have you found some perverse findings where the more incumbents spent, the lower their vote share. Really? Well, well that was on aggregate, and and that actually reflected the fact that. Um, Often when incumbents spend a lot of money, it's when they're in trouble. Okay. And sometimes they don't right. win. So you, right. you get these very odd kinds of findings when you look at these things in aggregate. So it, it's not a guarantee, right? Um, and so but it I, is a barrier for many, is it not? A, a barrier, yeah. I mean, that, that, you, know, you have to raise money. Yeah. Right? The, you know, to win us, I think in 2018, the average winning Senate campaign was about 15 million dollars it's a lot of money but even then that obscures the fact that a lot of those weren't as contested as others right, so right, you know beto o'rourke spent 80 million dollars not winning an election mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. And, and so uh but you still you know senate campaigns you know you're talking in the tens of millions potentially you know house campaigns you know three to five million kind of is sort of a winning campaign total. And for House, it's 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 even more of a challenge because those are happening every two years. Right, right. And, you know, one of the big concerns that people raise about um, raising money by House members is it's it never ends. Right. And, and, it, and House members spend uh, an inordinate amount of time raising money rather than doing perhaps what the people want them to do, right. which is to legislate and meet with them and discuss and ponder right. bigger issues. And so um, that's led to some really interesting reform proposals. You know, why don't we loosen up the contribution limits on on federal candidates in order to free them up to actually spend time with us, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one mechanism people have tried to do that over the years, of course, is through public funding. Right. And and certainly at the federal level, first of all, there was never a public funding system for, for Congress, and the presidential one is basically evaporated. Right. Because um, so, the candidates can raise more money on their own oh, rather absolutely. than following I the mean, rules. When Barack Obama in, in 08, you know, was facing maybe getting $94 million from the presidential uh, campaign fund and compare that to the close to billion dollars you could raise on your own and it was at that point a no-brainer and right. we've we've never looked back on right. that but does your does your close look at the data indicate that uh, the fundraising is giving uh, inordinate influence to certain groups I mean is that a so fair? The, the influence question is is one of the real challenges in social science right so people have looked for relationships between contributions uh, by, say, corporate PACs and votes in Congress. And 
they don't find that to be a systematically hmm. positive relationship, right? Hmm. It, it, it turns out to be difficult to get that linkage. And, and people have taken those findings and say, well, you're just not measuring the right thing, which is a, a good point. But it, then the question is, how do you begin to measure that kind of thing? And, and people have talked in terms of access, which I've always found a bit odd because do you want access simply for the purpose of access or do you want right. access for policy right. and right. and but you know people have looked at whether this you know campaign contributions by uh, corporate PACs have led either to policy and they've had a challenge there or do firms that do that do they see a particular bump in their earnings mm. or stock prices all sorts and it, it just doesn't seem to be there mm. so one of the challenges in this debate where we're all thinking that right. you know corporations are in particular are taking advantage of this is they're really the evidence isn't there systematically and and uh you know i've i've argued that all the attention that people have paid particularly on to corporate money in politics is probably a little misplaced because corporations um for a lot of reason don't have an incentive to participate in politics particularly to take advantage of the uh freedoms allowed under citizens united because that would that allowed corporations to pay for ads that said, you know, vote for this candidate. Well, that candidate has a party label. Right. And as soon as a corporation does that, you've basically alienated half the country. And right. it just, from a corporate strategy point of view, doesn't make any sense. Right. And and there were there was an amicus brief submitted to, to both in the case of Citizens United and in an earlier case from large business group that said, look at this is this is great, but we don't want it. Right, um, and we're not going to take advantage of this. Why? Right. Why would we do that? Right. right now, that that applies more rigorously, I think, to large public facing, consumer facing, publicly traded firms. Right, right. Um, where it gets a little more difficult is is privately held firms and. And I think particularly when you get off the national scene and you start looking at state and local elections, right. that, I would think that's, that's much more likely where something like that will emerge. It's just hard to document it systematically. Right. 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 But most of the money, I think you said in, in a conversation with me before, about 95% comes from individuals. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and, you know, you look at the, you know, 2018, the 10 largest super PACs, right? Uh you go look at where they got their money, uh, you know, over 92% from individuals whose names were disclosed. Right. Right. And even that's a little bit skewed because there were a couple that were dropped down into the high 60% or something like that, that, that drug down the, the normal rate, which was close to 98% or more. Wow. Right. Wow. So, um, and what's the weighting of big and small donations is, is it, a, a, well, this is, so if you're itemized, these are the ones I'm talking yeah. about where, where names are revealed along with, you know, your occupation and, right. and home addresses and all that sort of good <laughs> stuff. Um, it's, it's, if you, if you give $200, more than $200, right. Right. then you're obligated to, to report this sort of stuff. Right. Um, and so, uh, so all of, all the super PAC stuff is effectively disclosed. I mean, certainly, you know, that we hear a lot about dark money and the potential for corporations to, and they certainly can, uh, that's a way in which corporations can remain, and individuals can remain anonymous. And this is going through uh, what we call 501c4, 5s, and 6s. Uh, 501c4s are called social welfare organizations. And that that's the 
principal mechanism that's associated with dark money because the donors to a 501c4 do not have to be disclosed. Um, they were historically disclosed to the IRS in 2018. The IRS said, we don't want that information. But then a court said, eh, not so fast. Um, so that's a little bit in limbo. So that's disclosed, but to the IRS, but not publicly un until things get settled there. But, um, but the amount of corporate money in there is, is debatable, right? Um, right. And there's reason, partly the reason it's debatable is some of those privately disclosed forms to the IRS have actually found their way in, into the sunlight. And, and between that and there were a couple of very important cases where one of these organizations uh, was, uh, was sued and actually the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, was sued to, uh, to redesignate one of these things as what they call a political committee, which would be subject to the Federal Election Commission regulation that would have required more disclosure, full disclosure. And there was a 501c4, one of these social welfare organizations that actually, as part of their agreement with the FEC, agreed to be reclassified as a political committee and then fully disclosed their donors. Right. And the same thing happened to a 501c6, which was a trade association. A lot of people who had given money to that trade association under the assumption of anonymity suddenly found themselves wow. Wow. quite publicly uh, disclosed. And so I think going forward, there's going to be a tremendous amount of caution believe in believing that that actually will be or remain anonymous. Right. So. And, and, and the, again, the fundamental point is that most of this money is coming from individuals. It's not yes. coming from corporations. Yeah, I, again, the, the dark money stuff, the 501Cs, um, we don't know. Right. We, we can guess, we, we can understand the incentives for some to remain anonymous. Um, but, you know, when they are exposed, yeah, there's some corporate money there, um, but the bigger money is individuals, right? Zachary? Yeah. So, so uh, a lot of people are expressing concern that there's too much money in politics. And whether their concerns are evidence-based or not, it's a big problem when a lot of people don't believe in the soundness of our institutions. Yes. So, so what do you think are the solutions to, uh, at least in the minds of the public, level the playing field? Well, I mean, this is this is this whole debate about whether equalization versus liberty, where you fall on that spectrum, um, becomes an issue. I mean, this is the the question of sort of equal voice is... is That's what you mean by equalization, equal, right? Yeah, mechanisms that are designed to, to do that. I mean, public funding does that to some extent, but, uh, you know, early on there were expenditure limits um, on candidates in particular, sure. and and but the courts have, have not been particularly happy with that. So right now, um, there is really no uh, reason to believe that the courts will back off in any way from what effectively are unlimited independent in independent expenditures. Um, and so, you know, we, we've seen initiatives, public funding initiatives, particularly at the state and local level now. Um, you know, Seattle has a very famous one, but, you know, Maine and Arizona have, have had statewide uh, public funding initiatives. Uh, that's all well and good, but they cannot deal with independent expenditures. There was an effort in Arizona to try and wrap in independent expenditures as part of a right. public funding system, but that was overturned by the by the Supreme Court 
um, not too long ago, 2011. So what would you do, though? I mean, obviously, we have to deal with the realities of our system as right. it is. Right. Um, but but you're, I mean, you, you've, you've studied and mastered the detail. What are the ways we could turn the details to at least create, A, more of a perception of fairness, but B, also to, to at least give more of a shot to those who, for whatever reasons, have more trouble getting access to money? Yeah, you know, the opening, so the, the biggest constraint are the courts, right? I mean, that's one of the things that people fully don't appreciate is, is Congress has done surprisingly little. <laughs> surprisingly little. Yeah, e- even knowing Congress, they've done, they, they introduce a lot of bills, but they, they right. almost by design don't well, go very far. As you've said to me before, these are the winners of the system. Of they've course. been elected no, no, in no, the system. Exactly, so why would you want it. to change that, right? Um but the courts have played a very active role, and they've and they've redirected the course, you know, reasonably significantly over time. Um, but still, always within that Buckley framework. But even right. within that, there's been some some latitude. But the current court, you know, has has, has limited some certain options. On the other hand, they have emphasized other options. So, for instance, the the current court is extremely receptive to more disclosure, right? And so. You know, there there is some prospect about um, the dark money issue mm-hmm. getting mm-hmm. some sympathy. Mm-hmm. It's, should something like that ever reach the Supreme Court, not guaranteed, but in, in a relative sense, that's the sort of thing. But again, that's that's not where most of the money right. is. Most right. of the money is coming from individuals. Right. Um, the the only way that's likely to change is one of the key decisions in recent court cases. Citizens United being an important example. There was another more recent case called McCutcheon, um, where uh, the the, uh, the the court emphatically states that independent expenditures these these are the what super PACs spend their money on right political ads um, give no cause for either actual or perceived corruption right so a billion dollar ad campaign funded by a rich individual uh, is deemed by the court not to uh, bring forth any concerns about corruption whatsoever. That's going back to Buckley, but you know, independent expenditures back in the early six seventies were were not a significant player. Right. So the world has changed. the The language of the court has not. In fact, it's sort of doubled down on this notion that that independent expenditures um, cannot raise any specter of corruption or perceptions of corruption. Right. I think a lot of people feel challenged by that con- sure. conclusion, whether the court will ever, uh, perhaps in what we call an as-applied challenge, saying, hey, look at the world's changed in ways you possibly didn't perceive or understand, uh, and reconsider that. Um, but but the fact that the court has made that statement explicitly in, in two major cases, if not more, um, even makes that a challenge, right? So the the notion that that given the legal landscape right now, that there's hope of getting this, particularly the large individual right. uh, players out of the game is, is just right. not likely. But right? but I do think, uh, and, and I think this is a good note for us to, to close on, I do think that there's a lot of power in this point of disclosure and people knowing where their money's come from and, and our as voters and, and as consumers of media, our being more uh, astute in who is, who is financing what we see, right? Yeah, and, and again, that, that is the one opening the court has very clearly given us. You know, right. And 
Congress has put forward something called the Disclose Act, every Congress since then, and it and it never gets through, like so many other things, and, and one ponders the reason why. Yes. <laughs> uh, it makes for, for, for good political rhetoric. Um, yes. But for some reason, it just never finds Members of its Congress way. don't want to disclose. <laughs> well, yeah. But but this this is something that citizens could push for, and it is it is a, a way in which citizens could themselves brand candidates. Uh, in the way I think many people are talking now about creating laws to uh, require the uh, the submission of tax returns to the public, which had been a norm is not always uh, followed. One could create a political norm. Uh, and then put legal well, teeth I mean, behind it. Think about what again. Think about what Taft did back right. in, in 1908. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Some some bold move outside of the actual law actually led to changes in the law. Yes. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Zachary, what do you think? Do Do you think that that young people who are perhaps frustrated uh, by money in politics uh, would be um, motivated to, at the very least, get more information out there and share that information with with the public? Yes, uh, definitely. I think young people are, are very worried about the amount of money in politics. So I think part of the problem is that the the specter of money and the specter of of outs of, of of hidden influence in politics uh, turns a lot of young people away from politics. Right. And I think just simply making our politics more open and about the ideas and not the money. Is, is something that I think will really open politics up to a new generation of leaders. Right. So let me let me make one please last please observation please along these lines. So if you go back um, to the first president not to take public funding, which was President Obama back in, in 08, right? right? But McCain did. But since 08, to every election since, the candidate that got the most money from small donors won. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's a very strong recognition of the role of small donors and an emphasis on small donors. And the technology now makes the ability to raise that kind of money so much easier. And it turns out to be a winning strategy. And so maybe there's some... Some hope in just sort of very pragmatic politics that that more candidates will see that it, it it's not just a question of of providing a rhetorical point, but also you know if someone gives you a dollar, they're going to vote. Right. It's a mobilization strategy. It's right. not necessarily a fundraising strategy, or right. as much. And, and, and it is a form of political speech. I mean, we we oh, criticize we criticize that seventy six Supreme Court decision. But it could actually be quite empowering for young people like Zachary to be able to give their pennies yeah. uh, to a new but, kind but of again, candidate. Once right. you've given a penny, you're invested, right? right. It, it, it doesn't have to fund the campaign. It's, it's, it's getting you, the voter, invested in this. And, and that's just the difference between zero and anything, right? right? And, and I think there's a growing recognition of that as a mobilization strategy, not just as a fundraising strategy right. by politicians. And as, and, and as a new generation of millennials and Generation Z that, uh, as of this year, will outnumber baby boomers, also become the majority of the workforce, meaning that they have access then to more capital. Uh, this will be a powerful force in our society. Brian, thank you for sharing, uh, really, your enormous mastery of these complex details and pointing out to us one of the most important themes for our, our podcast week in and week out 
which is that the complexity of our history, first of all, helps to understand where we are today, but also helps to chart perhaps unexpected positive pathways forward. And, and that's really what you've laid out for us today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this immensely. And Zachary, thank you for your, your poem. Uh, I, I do want to close with uh, your with, with you on, on money. Do you, do you really think that uh, money is, is, is an inevitable problem, or do you think it can be turned to positive uses, Brian? Has, has I, I think it's both. And, and what I tried to bring through in my poem is that, that money has been a great uh, freeing mechanism in our society. It's in many ways what attracted our ancestors to come to America. But at the same time, it has also, it has also served the opposite purpose. And right. I think it's making clear the role that money serves in our, in, in our politics, that that's what we need to do. And I think the historical lesson and thinking through how we use our money is really the, the most important thing here. Thank you for joining us uh, for this discussion on This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.